This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. In this month's programme, we have a definite Latin American focus. But first, we get the latest on the COVID-19 crisis and how it's affecting farming communities across the developing world. We'll be talking to IFAD's Associate Vice President, Donald Brown. Also on the menu is a meeting with Slow Foods boss, Rebecca Tapi from Bahia State in northeastern Brazil. She's updating us on how the indigenous Kiriri community are dealing with climate change impacts and the effects of COVID-19. Staying in South America, we head over to Bolivia, where some really interesting work is going on. First, we hear from IFAD's partner, Haibos. They carried out a survey on young people's eating habits and perspectives on food. Some interesting results there. Then we talk to the people running the Gastronomy Schools program. And finally, we hear about the Back to the Roots campaign. This runs in Bolivia, Peru and Chile, with a focus on linking farmers to restaurants and markets. Also, we kick off not one, but two mini-series, which will be running over the next three months. Our first offering is Meet the Experts. This month, we have Oliver Page, regional specialist on climate and the environment for Latin America. And our second delight is the Recipes for Change series with Italy's biggest celebrity chef, Carlo Cracco. This month, we'll be heading off to Morocco. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. And don't forget, we have also Arabic, French and Spanish versions of the podcast at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Please subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. First, we check in with IFAD's Associate Vice President, Donald Brown, about the latest on how rural communities are dealing with the ongoing global pandemic. Donald tells us about the lessons we are learning and how this is changing our operations in the field. I also asked how exactly our operations are responding as the COVID-19 crisis affects not just health, but also has a knock-on effect for economies, markets and food security in developing countries. Well, we have um, a number of initiatives going on. We have three different areas. Firstly, we are mitigating the impacts of the COVID crisis on our existing projects by repurposing uh, the projects and in that context, we have uh, now got about $150 million worth of, of uh, existing project financing being repurposed to focus on COVID. So that was unallocated money within existing projects, which working with government, we are repurposing to address um, the COVID issues. And that's in about... 80 countries and it covers over 120 projects. So that goes from, for example, in Cambodia, where we're repurposing projects there, over 20 million worth of projects to provide agricultural inputs and 
provision of additional production support to those most affected by COVID, through to, for example, in Ethiopia, where we've been repurposing up to $15 million worth of, uh, of, of finance within a rural finance project to ensure that the financial institutions have liquidity and additional liquidity to support their clients, in other words, poor rural farmers during the response, but also to allow financial institutions to be able to make uh, the loan repayments uh, necessary to, to the government to ensure that they don't go bankrupt. So a range of existing activity in, um, in repurposing projects. The second area is providing additional policy and analytical support to governments. And in that context, we've spent nearly $500,000 in over 23 countries to help government, for example, uh, the majority of these in conducting rapid assessments of the situation and impact of COVID in, uh, in the rural sector, but also help, helping with uh, developing uh, government response plans for COVID. So we've been working with other, uh, other RBAs and UN agencies to support government in a COVID response to the rural sector. And then the third area is we have launched the Rural Stim the Poor Stimulus Facility, uh, which uh, we now have our first projects coming through. Uh, initially, EFAB put in $14 million worth of seed funding. I'm pleased to announce that Canada was the first donor to give us additional funding, $6 million uh, Canadian dollars, and there are a number of other donors uh, interested in providing funding. So we are going ahead with developing regional and country proposals for approval uh, for direct COVID response through the stimulus facility. So um, what would you say are the lessons that IFAD's learnt and that we'll be taking forward? The main lesson is while IFAD has prided itself in building strong, um, strong approaches to resilience in our projects, because you know, most projects, uh, development projects, will encounter shocks of various types during the lifetime of a project. So we have been trying to build the resilience uh, aspects into our projects, particularly the uh, resilience for climate change and extreme weather. I think the main lesson we've learned, and that's where most of the international community has focused on climate and economic shocks, is it's been a long time since we've had a rural uh, a pandemic that has, has uh, affected us at this level. We obviously learned some lessons from Ebola uh, in 2013 to 2015 in West Africa, but uh, I think we were unprepared for the scale and the impact of a pandemic shock and its interruption to food supply chains, to uh, physical access to markets, etc. So we've learned a lot of lessons about having a broader approach to resilience and resilience building in our projects. And that is now uh, a much stronger emphasis in EFAD 12 in our next replenishment cycle and our objectives in that period uh, is to have a much stronger focus on wider resilience building rather than just 
climate and economic. So would you say, Donald, that we are well prepared, better prepared for future shocks of this nature and others? I would say honestly that we are getting better prepared. I wouldn't say we are better prepared. Uh, we are still we are still learning lessons of what works, what doesn't work in response to COVID, as well as, you know, it's a very, very live uh, issue. In, and, and for example, in Latin America, we are at the sort of height of the crisis. So we still have more to learn. And it very much depends on the country context, the capacity of the governments, on those responses. So I think we're still learning lessons, but I think we are getting better prepared for future shocks of this crisis as the world is. It's a timely reminder of the fact that a global pandemic can have such enormous impacts and we're trying to build those lessons into how we respond in EFAN 12 and beyond, but we're not there yet. That was IFAD's Donald Brown. You can find out the latest relating to COVID-19 and IFAD's work at ifad.org forward slash COVID-19. You're listening to Farms Food Future. You can hear that interview on our Arabic, French or Spanish podcast as well at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. And next we have the first of a short series, Meet the Experts. This is Farms Food Future, and this month we're kicking off a new short series where you get a quick introduction to our experts. Today's is the turn of the Latin America and Caribbean region's lead technical specialist on climate and environment, Oliver Page. He tells us a little bit about what he does. Climate and environment are really important issues in Latin America. The livelihoods of smallholder farmers in Latin America are intrinsically linked to natural resources and their management. So it's a challenge for IFAD. Latin America holds some of the most important and valuable natural resources. Likewise, smallholders in Latin America are some of the most vulnerable to climate change impacts. IFAD is very strong in this field because our mandate is to work with smallholders and the most vulnerable people. So we have 40 years of working with farmers, with indigenous communities. As climate change has become a more important issue and has affected our smallholders more and more, we have been able to address these issues in our investments. IFAD will have to scale up its activities with regards to climate change. And rather than climate change being one of the issues that we will be addressing, smallholder livelihoods and climate change will be one of the same. Coming to IFAD has allowed me to work on the issue that's my passion with the people who need it the most. Smallholder farmers are clearly the people who are most impacted by climate change and therefore working with them to address their problems and find solutions is a privilege and an honour. That was lead technical specialist on climate and environment for the Latin America and Caribbean region, Oliver Page. You can find more Meet the Expert interviews at IFAD's YouTube channel. That's under IFAD TV. We'll have another expert to meet in next month's edition. Meanwhile, you can find out more about what the International Fund for Agricultural Development is all about by going to our website, www.ifad.org. 
And you can also find more podcasts at the same address forward slash podcasts. Also now in Arabic, French and Spanish. Coming up, we have news from Slow Food in Brazil. Now let's turn to one of IFAD's most important partners, Slow Food. Rebecca Tapi is the coordinator of Slow Food projects in northeastern Brazil's Bahia state, where IFAD has been working with Slow Food for the past decade. The project we talk about focuses on young people in the Kiriri community and indigenous people in the east of Brazil. The Kiriri people are based in the semi-arido region of Bahia and are among 225 indigenous groups living across the country. One of the major threats to their livelihoods is the impact of droughts on their crops. The work, supported by IFAD and Slow Food, focuses on the production of cassava and finding ways to add value to their traditional processing techniques. I first asked Rebecca to tell me something about the project with the Kiriri people. How did it get started and what does it deal with? The aim of this project is to bring a new income alternative for those young people through the evaluation of biodiversity by improving the quality of cassava and derivatives, promoting food heritage and maintaining the indigenous sustainable practice to improve local livelihoods. And this was very, very important. And it is worth mentioning that this action has been having a great and positive impact to the Kiri people, as it was the first project involving young people where the decisions and the definitions of activity were developed by them, supported by families, compromised into three components according to a road map that they had done. First was increase the economic value of products linked to the food heritage, considering all the culture linked with the food. Then the political incident and strength the Terra Madre indigenous network, considering that the project is for the young people, so it's very important for them to be contact, in touch and work together. And then the knowledge management to improve the organization of the agro-industry and become uh, the main income for those young people and maintain them uh, in the countryside, avoid immigration to the city. So following the local demands, uh, the cassava is the focus of the project for the importance not only for indigenous people, but also for the Brazilian population who called the Maniva as the queen of Brazil. Uh, the roots are very rich in carbohydrates. The leaves contain up to 25% protein, plus iron, calcium, vitamin A and C. And also the other parts of the plants can be used as an animal feed. So talking about semi-arid region, it's really contributed to the food security and nutrition for the smallholders. And that explains why the fowl has named it the 21st century crop. Overall, uh, we realized that working with cassava in a semi-arid region of Brazil raises issues such as climate change, biodiversity, food and nutrition security, 
networking, income generation, social technology and innovations, empowerment and political influence. All those topics has been discussed with the indigenous Kiriri throughout the project. Considering the big changes we've seen this year as a result of COVID-19, I also asked how the pandemic is affecting the communities. It seems no cases have appeared so far, but there is still an impact for the Kiriri. The coronavirus pandemic has been affecting the Kiriri on a social, economic and production level. The community's main economic activity is based on substance agriculture, gathering tropical fruit, small animals and other roots. However, cassava cultivation has always been the group's productive base. The first impact is the lack of income due to a social isolation, particularly for women and young people who sell cassava products, such as cake and biscuits in local events that take place throughout the year in the state of Bahia. Due to pandemic, all cultural events have been cancelled. Then the closure of the municipality primary school also affects the local income, since no demand by the national school feeding program has been done. And this activity represents one of the main incomes for the local association called ASICSA. Further, uh, the pandemic also is affecting the collective work. Currently on Kiriri's land, it's the planting season for beans and corn. And many families come together at time to work on the field, helping each other. With social isolation, this practice has been done by each family individually, changing the dynamic and the cultural traditional. So I dare to say that these will aff have effect on productivity since they do all the process by hand on a traditional way. And to work on the semi-arid land is quite hard. After that, uh, the expectation of Kiriwi is by September to, uh, 2020, coronavirus has minimized in the region. So they could work together to produce cassava flour, whose harvest began between September and November once a year. The community is better placed to cope with the impacts due to the work that's gone on so far particularly the work with young people, which is building resilience and future-proofing the project's gains. Uh, well, before the outbreak of activities in February 2020 due to the epidemic, the project was experiencing a very positive and a productive phase. However, uh, one of the most important results that we had seen was the empowerment of young people related to the actions of the project. Without this appropriation, there will be no autonomy and continuity once the project reaches the end. So to reinforce this motivation, the young people has received training in management, marketing, understanding of the administrative organization of the agro-industry, exchange knowledge and uh, uh, production information and due to a climate change solutions, 
revealing new profiles and uh, attitudes that naturally organize themselves. So some result has been bringing together the project, such as the study and approach of new commercial partners. Also was very motivating for the young Kiwi to understand the markets, new opportunities, and also creating new demand. And this has happened thanks to the innovation of the product's cassava recipe adding local ingredients like fruits from the semi-arid region, improving nutritional aspects as well as bring the indigenous cultural identity into uh, the biscuits and cakes products. Looking to the future, Rebecca told me that the recent crisis, with more people staying at home and cooking from scratch, has made more of a focus on healthy food systems. Promoting family farming is contributing to saving garden biodiversity, ensure food safety is out negative impact on the environment, bring nutritional and new flavor to consumer's table, understand the role of the family agriculture in our food system, and helping consumer be part of the process, assuming his role of co-producer. And this work, Slow Food, has been supporting for the last 30 years. That was Rebecca Tapi from Slow Food in Brazil. Please go to ifad.org forward slash podcasts to hear our other podcasts. In episode two, we have news on innovative work around resilience building to climate change impacts. In episode four, we have women who are leading the way in innovation in smallholder farms. And in episode nine, we have a special report from small island developing states in the Pacific. All that and lots more on Farms Food Future. Don't forget, this episode and more are now in Arabic, French and Spanish. But back to this edition. Coming up, we hear all about what young people in Bolivia are thinking about food. How can we encourage young people to eat healthy, sustainable, diverse food? The HIVOS Sustainable Food for All program, alongside IFAD and Cosecha Colectiva de los Ninjunes, wants to find out. So they carried out a survey with 1,000 participants between the ages of 18 and 35 in La Paz and also El Alto, Bolivia, to know more about young people's perspective on food. Nicole Sux told Estefania Rada more about their findings and what was the goal of this research. Well, we wanted to know what the consumers, the young consumers, are eating, and we wanted to know why. A lot of uh, big enterprises do this, this market research, but usually us working with more sustainable food, we really don't know. So we wanted to know what do they eat and especially why are they eating what they're eating. And what were the main findings that you could analyze through this research? Well, we found out a lot of interesting things. For starters, we could see a big uh, difference in gender. Women were much more responsive and knew more about healthy food and healthy diets, and they tried to eat healthier. Whereas men, they didn't really know and they didn't really care. That was one interesting thing. The other thing is that we found out is that women are the ones that cook the most at home. Men, even though in the new generation, they don't cook as much as they should be cooking because they don't necessarily have the skills. Then we found out 
that a lot of people eat outside their homes and they usually eat fast food. And the main reason um, they buy this food is because of the taste and because of the price. One of the things that was most interesting about the research is that we asked um, the young people, what are their main um, concerns when getting food? And the first one is flavor, and then it's price, and then at the end it's if it's healthy or not. So the fact that if it's healthy, it doesn't really account into the equation. Then, for example, we knew that there are other factors why people choose food. A lot of them are because availability and accessibility and because it makes them full. Most of the people we interviewed were students, so they need a good food to keep concentrated and to go through the day. And they usually eat small breakfast at home and try to eat also lunch at home. And usually people eat dinner outside and they buy uh, chicken or burgers or salchipapas, which are sausages with price. So that was interesting as well. We found out that uh, the main food in our diet is carbohydrates. And also meat is a very important part of the meal. There's very few intake of vegetables. People refer to salads. When they eat salad, it's a small portion before the meal. And it's lettuce with tomatoes. So it doesn't necessarily give all the nutrients. And also what was sad, but also interesting, is that most young people don't consume food from our roots, meaning, for example, Andean grains or some legumes or others that are rich in nutrients and also uh, rich in protein, but not animal protein. Taking in account that that you told us that people are not consuming uh, food from their roots, from their indigenous diets, for example, uh, what do you think can be done to actually convince uh, young people to change their diets? We need to change our language and the way we talk about food. Usually, the big enterprises, they talk about food as something be, being cool, being affordable, being approachable. Whereas when we talk about healthy, uh, usually people find it boring. When we talk about sustainable, uh, this was something interesting as well. When we asked them, what is sustainable food for you? Many said that it can sustain you through the day. So they don't really understand the implications of food and environment. So we need to uh, change our language and talk differently. Talk about food that's healthy and sustainable food as something that is affordable, that can be found, that is accessible, and that is good for you, not just because your mom is telling you, but because you want to take care of yourself and you want to take care of your health. Um, we also found it very important to have these conversations with young people because sometimes we just come with the message and it's not the right message. So we need to get more in their circles, talk more, understand more why are they buying what they're buying, how is it possible to change it, why do they care about, etc. Also about the indigenous food, more native food, I think it's important to make it more available in restaurants, in cafeterias, in the markets, because even though you find them raw in the markets, there are very few places where you can actually eat them. So it's not just young people who stop eating them, but it's the older generation who stop providing it. So we need to work with that as well, with possibilities of trying these foods. 
and making them also tasty, you know, because um, this, this perception that healthy equals not tasty is something that we grow up with. So it's something that we need to change right now, that a healthy can mean tasty. And also that healthy is not necessarily more pricey or expensive and that you can also get filled up with healthy things because that was another thing is that they said that if you eat healthy, you don't get full. But that's not true because the notion of healthy, usually it's a salad, but that's not necessarily what it is. We also think that we need to change this step by step. Sometimes we want to rush and we get really frustrated because things don't change and we need to start uh, step by step. So working with um, school meals and school food, working with TV, working with media, working with social networks, with restaurants, it needs to be something that it's um, worked through many points and not just one point. So we need to think about this and work for this systematically because um, young people usually think that they are not going to get sick until they're old and maybe when they're old they need to eat healthier but we need to prevent that prevent them from getting sick when they're old so I think it needs to be step by step That was Nicole Souks on young people's perspectives on food in La Paz and El Alto and how we can improve it this is Farms Food Future, also broadcast in French, Spanish and Arabic. Just go to ifad.org forward slash podcast. Up next, we have more from Bolivia and we hear all about astronomy schools. Manca schools in Bolivia are working to improve the lives of vulnerable young people. They focus on overcoming social and economic inequality through gastronomy. IFAD supports Manca through the Rural for Young People project, which creates youth employment opportunities. Baita Espinosa, a project representative, told E. Stefania Rada more about why the Manca schools were created and how they're doing. Well, Manca schools uh, are an initiative of Eco Cooperation that was uh, implemented by, by Eco since 2014. At first in Bolivia, then in Colombia, and now we're going to scale the model to Guatemala. This, the schools are in Bolivia for young people in vulnerable situations. In Colombia, the project is aimed to uh, impacting young people, victims or of the armed conflict uh, in that country, and also displaced people by the, by the war. And what do Manca students learn at the schools? I think the, 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 the basic uh, is that they learn technical uh, skills and, and tools in gastronomy that allow them to have skills to face a job or develop uh, their own um, ventures. Uh, however, the, the differential value and the added value for them is that Manca uh, also revaluates the uh, local products, uh, also the rural areas the nutrition of young people and through them to their families. Uh, they also recover the identity and the culture of the young people. And we also develop um, personal skills such as leadership, self-esteem, teamwork, communication, and others. And what is the cost of this program for Manca students or students that want to be a part of Manca? 
Okay, um, this is uh, because of the population uh, characteristics uh, with the people that we work, the cost is very low. Each student pays around $60 for the six months of training, and this cost covers the materials and the uniforms. Um, they also provide, the students provide cooking supplies for the class, uh, but the real cost for each student per student is around $600, which is supported and paid by the different donors we have, such as uh, FIDA, Educans, European Union, Kerkin, among others. Great, and to finalize this interview, what sorts of returns are we seeing now for Manca students? What are the uh, results that are indicating the success of this program to eco-cooperation and also the life of the students? Uh, okay, um, we have a lot of results, I think. The, the, the impact of the program is, is around five years that have been Implemented, have trained more than 4,000, I think it's 4,500 students so far that have been trained in gastronomy. I'll have to say that 70% of those students are women. 58% um, of the young people trained in Manca are currently inserted in the labor market with direct employment or the development of internships. 12% have been developing uh, their own ventures and 165 families of small producers have been linked to the Manca schools, also in Colombia. 92% of the young people have changed their eating habits and improved their nutrition. Also, this includes the impact in, the, in families, in the households. And 80% of the young people are proud uh, of their identity and their connection to rural areas. We measure all this kind of, of information or results with different tools we have. We monitor the impact of the, of the program in different phases. Thanks to Raita for updating us on the Manka schools and their accomplishments. Coming up on Farms Food Future, we're going back to the roots with Umberto Gomez. Back to the Roots is an IFAD-funded project that aims to offer innovative rural development solutions with a special focus on women and young producers. It's based on the idea that gastronomy can link small farmers to different markets and business opportunities. A number of groups are involved, including MIGA in Bolivia, Fundación Rondo in Chile, and the Catholic University of Peru. Estefania Rada spoke to Umberto Gomez, the project representative, about how it's developing in these three different countries. In the three countries, uh, we note uh, how there are very different experiences to try to reach the market from the uh, small producers. Uh, we have uh, territorial brands, uh, gastronomic festivals, training centers, festivals, restaurants, and, and different um, uh, initiatives that achieve articulation between the producers and the market. So uh, we ask ourselves, 
how can we go beyond uh, the sowing and harvesting? Uh, how can we get uh, the cook and the gastronomy to uh, connect uh, with the uh, producers and, and the market? And how we can do that, trying to strengthen identities and using that to define uh, a new kind of uh, intervention that is based on uh, this premise. For example, there are initiatives in Chile, like uh, Cooperativa Mieles del Sur, that have developed all the change of, uh, of the product from the uh, honey production to the commercialization at the, uh, at the international level. Uh, then we have uh, as another way to approach to this, uh, to this intervention, the participation in fairs. Uh, we have agroferias campesinas uh, in one hand in Peru, and in other hand uh, we have a festival gastronomico ñam in Chile. Uh, in one hand, the producers are the ones to uh, to um, create these fairs and and to bring uh, the market to them. Uh, other other innovative way to to do this connection is through the articulation with training centers. We have Manca, that is a school uh, in Bolivia who trains people um, to, to, to be a cook or to be a, a chef, but at the same time uh, works with the connection with the product and the producers. Another uh, way to, to get this approach is the uh, direct relationship with cooks or restaurants. We have the example of uh, El Bodegón in Peru or El Restaurante Gusto in Bolivia. Both of them have developed uh, that, this approach of uh, the producer development to try to have products um, uh, of, of the best uh, quality. And in the end, the other, the other experience that we have identified is the territorial approach to try to create a territorial um, uh, mark. Uh, we have this experience in Tarija Aromas y Sabores that has developed not only one product, but a group of, pro of, of, of products that are related to one territory. Uh, these routes, these, these different, different ways to, to, to get in touch between the uh, producers and the market are not mutually exclusive, uh, but rather they lead one to another or are complementary between, uh, between, between them. What are the issues that Back to the Roots is dealing with now? The main problem that we face in the uh, in the projects are the that are different differentiated capacities among the rural producers and uh, an approach that bring bring them to the market through cooking or through gastronomy requires them uh, or the ones to facilitate this this process to have some capacities and to provide some capacities. And these capacities can be provided to rural extension, through scholarships, to technical assistance, and through other different uh, approaches. A particular challenge uh, for, our, for our understanding is that cooking or gastronomy is not only an act of preparing food, but is a, in, uh, it is an entire social act that involves production, collection, transformation, and the final uh, commercialization of the product. Understanding uh, this 
uh, and understanding that this is a part of a heritage, is a part of a, an, an identity, uh, it, is a, it is an important part of our, our idea and it's a challenge for us. How is Cusina Bar planning to reach decision makers and other key actors to amplify these tools? To reach decision makers, uh, we have created a virtual platform to show this innovative way to understand the kitchen and the gastronomy. And uh, in this, uh, in this uh, platform, uh, we have the systematized experiences. We have a toolbox uh, that, will, that, that will help uh, uh, whoever who wants to develop uh, this kind of, of, of intervention to do so. And at the same time, we have a course uh, that is mainly aimed to public managers, but it is open to everybody to everyone who wants to develop an initiative of this kind uh, to uh, try to develop projects with a, with a Cocina Par uh, approach. We hope that this, together with a communication strategy, will prov provide us uh, the necessary opportunities to try to reach to the decision makers. Thanks to our roving reporter, Estefania Rada, talking there to Back to the Roots, Umberto Gomez. Coming up, we're looking at recipes for change with Chef Carlo Craco. IFAD's Recipes for Change series takes top chefs to visit IFAD projects and cook with the householders. Together, they look at some of the impacts of climate change on crucial crops and ingredients. But they also get to see some of the solutions put in place with IFAD's support so that farmers can build that all-important resilience. In the first of three reports, Sam Cole was with Italian celebrity chef Carlo Craco in the highlands of eastern Morocco. It's in this region where Moroccan truffles or terfas can be found. While many people see truffles as a luxury, for small farmers in this region, these fungi are a staple natural resource. However, truffle harvests are being threatened due to a changing climate. Overgrazing and climate change are contributing to land degradation within the eastern highlands, causing issues such as desertification, drought and prolonged hot and cold weather. Many smallholders are dependent on terfas for extra income. Recorded prior to lockdown, Sam Cole has this report. Italian top chef and TV star Carlo Craco has arrived in eastern Morocco to visit local farmers who are struggling to defend their livelihoods local culture and regional cuisine from climate change. Home to herders and nomads, these highlands have been hard hit by desertification and overgrazing. With vast areas stripped of all vegetation, traditional foods such as the Moroccan truffle, a staple ingredient, has become increasingly hard to find. Just looking for edible plants here in the field, in this terrain, is inspiring. It makes you understand how people here have the sensibility to recuperate everything, to use all that the land can give them. And for us, it is important to discover these authentic flavors that are so powerful and rich. So the chef teams up with 70-year-old Fatma. Together, they will prepare traditional tagine using regional specialities, Moroccan truffles and local lamb. This one has a strong smell. It is a cross between a truffle, a mushroom and a potato. 
But it is important. It is a fundamental part of their nutrition. And Fatma, who was a nomad most of her life, explains how important these truffles are for the local diet. We love these truffles because in good seasons they can be found everywhere. Any member of the family could go just beyond the tent and find enough to prepare one or two pots. We use them in tagines, couscous and other dishes, and we dry them to use during the period when there are no truffles. Basically, she is diluting the spices in water, making a type of light marinade. While the truffles are boiling in water, the cooks prepare the lamb. With less shrubs to graze on, sheep numbers are also dwindling, and herders are forced to abandon the area to find a living elsewhere. This lamb is a crucial source of nutrition here, and it lives thanks to all the magnificent plants that it can eat. Leaving the tagine to sim on a wood far, Krakow is taken to where work is being done to hinder the encroaching desert. Covering an area of 3.5 million hectares, the International Fund for Agriculture Development, or IFAD, together with the United Nations Industrial Development Organization, UNIDO, are collaborating with local communities to reduce poverty by fighting desertification. Massive areas replanted with indigenous shrubs are fenced off and act like natural seed banks, using the wind to disperse the seeds. Soil erosion is being combated by planting thousands of drought-resistant plants and building microdams to catch and preserve rainwater. So far, the project has benefited 100,000 people. Climate change is a fact. It is difficult to change or reverse the process. Perhaps it is no longer possible. Perhaps we can slow it down, but we cannot stop it. Coming here is an humbling experience. It shows you how important man's input is, the culture, maintaining a tradition. Because if you let it go, the desert will advance. It is essential to put in place something for people here, for those who live here, so they will not leave or move away from here. Thanks to Sam Cole for that report. We'll be cooking in Cambodia next month with Sam and Chef Graco. And you can try cooking a traditional Moroccan tagine with turfas and lamb. You can substitute the turfas for parsnips, carrots or potatoes. And you can find that recipe at IFAD's website. Just click on Latest, then Campaigns, then Recipes for Change and scroll down to the Carlo Craco page where the recipe is located. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future. Remember, we now produce all our content in French, Spanish and Arabic as well. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, our reporters, Estefania Rada, Julia Gemarej and Caroline Silao Herrera and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. 
send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of September with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson, and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening. Thank you.